0: Uh, back up a little bit there. So, what does the manure do in the water?
1: Um, there are enzymes in that manure that will break down the
0: flesh a lot faster. I'm not sure. I even want to ask how you figured that out. Um, on pure accident, when my horse backed up
1: and, and uh, did his business in a pot that I had sitting outside. Mm-hmm.
0: Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with another edition of the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. I am really excited to have Gary Hawkins from Game and Fish with us today. Gary, thanks for taking the time to pull up a chair and chat with us a little bit. Oh, uh, you bet. Uh, I'll, I'll enjoy it. I'm sure. Well, Gary, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been on with uh, with New Mexico Game and Fish?
1: I've been here, uh, just a tad over three years, started in June of 17. Uh, but, um, prior to that, uh, had about 30 years in the field before I got here.
0: And that was with Texas Parks and Wildlife. Uh,
1: I spent 25 years with Texas Parks and Wildlife. I started, uh, in West Texas with their Desert Bighorn Sheep program. I was the, uh, field operations coordinator for Bighorn Sheep. Uh, and then I moved to East Texas and, uh, Went from a uh, county biologist, uh to a WMA biologist to a district supervisor, so kinda hopped around a bit with, with parks and
0: wildlife over there. Man, a lot of different experience than over in Texas.
1: Yeah, it was it was a fun ride. Got to work with uh everything from big horn sheep, white like tailed deer, alligators, turkeys, um basically if it had fur, feathers, uh got to mess with it some, so it was pretty cool.
0: That's awesome. And so now your current position with New Mexico is the Open Gate coordinator, is that right?
1: Yep, that's what I do now is, is run that program for the state.
0: Can you tell us just a little bit about the Open Gate program and, and what that is exactly?
1: Basically, to, to, to break it down simple, uh, we work with private landowners to lease their land for the public to be able to hunt on private property or lease their land for the public to be able to cross that private property to get to public lands.
0: Okay, well so let's talk in a little bit of detail about I guess the landowner side of this program first and then we'll jump into it from a hunter's perspective. Um, So you said a landowner can participate either by signing up their property or sort of providing right-of-way access to, to other lands?
1: Yeah, um, we, can e- we can either work with them to allow hunting or fishing specifically on their property, um, where if they have a population of, of turkeys, let's say, or a good fishing hole, um, we can work with them, we lease them and pay them for the opportunity to let the public out there uh, to hunt or fish on that property. Um, The agreements that we make with them are negotiated for specifically for their property, so there's not a blanket agreement one size fits all. We try to work very closely with the landowner to do what they would like. Um, We do have a payment rate table that we work off of um, and negotiate the the rates with them based on that uh, payment table and what kind of habitat or, or fishing opportunity or whatever that they provide. Um, that's one way or, or we lease access across their property to public lands. And what we do is look at the opportunity on the public lands and then negotiate the lease rate based on how many acres of public lands that they're providing access to.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, and that was going to be my next question was what the benefit was to the landowner. So it sounds like there is a, a lease involved, a payment involved. Are there other, um, incentives or benefits like um, funding for improving habitats or, or anything like that that would also be a, a benefit to participating landowners? Well,
1: on top of the lease, uh, the lease rate that we pay them, one of the big things is, is that we uh, provide a liability insurance coverage on their property so that by allowing hunters or anglers on their property they're fully covered under from a liability standpoint uh within the program uh and so that's a big one um and then we do uh try we don't have any specific programs for habitat incentive work but if a landowner is interested in doing that kind of stuff i'm i'm always game to work with them to try to find Opportunities through EQUIP or you know other programs to see what we can do, and so I you know I do provide kind of a, a technical guidance aspect if they're interested.
0: Okay, so working with them to meet their goals as well. So you talked a little bit about uh, I guess the legal protections for landowners. What about um, as far as when people are out there, do, do officers patrol those properties? Are there specific rules and regulations? For those properties, are they posted? Kind of, kind of, give us some details on on the, I guess, the legal aspects of of using the property.
1: You bet. Um, we have when we negotiate the agreement with the landowner. We, a part of that negotiation is what they will and won't allow on that property. Um, we most of them we don't allow camping. We don't allow campfires. Uh, you know, s- stuff that is um, going to help protect the landowner. We negotiate all of that in, and then on every single property, when you pull up to it, there's what we call the main sign uh, at the at the entrance, and every rule for the property is, is posted on that main sign. Um, and then there is also a uh, QR code on there that you can hold your phone up, and it will download a PDF of the property rules, uh, the hunting season dates, fishing dates, whatever that may be, and then it also downloads a uh, map, a PDF map that's geo-referenced that you can use to navigate on the property so that you know exactly where you are. Um, on the, on our website is also PDF documents that have all the rules. And part of what we do is before we lease a property, we, we meet with the landowner and the local game wardens, uh, make sure we're all on the same page. And then that's, that's part of, part of the benefit to the landowners, they do get increased law enforcement patrol on those properties that are open.
0: Very cool, very cool. So you you mentioned um, the rules and regulations specific to that property. So th- does the landowner, I guess, have any, any say in that as far as limiting species, the dates available, um, pro- areas, let's say that, you know, there's an area with a house and a barn that they don't want people around. Do they have to enroll their whole property? Or are there restrictions that, that they can uh, kind of work with you on at the in the beginning stages?
1: There's all kinds of ways that we can negotiate it. Um, basically, we enroll the property that's on their deeds because uh, they're going to supply a deed so that we know that we're working with a legal ownership. But if they have a house out there or a set of holding pins or something that they don't want anybody around, uh, we post that as a safety zone and which restricts access into that area. Uh, it's still part of the lease. They get paid for that, but it's restricted access just for safety. Um, if they want to do spring turkey hunting and not fall, if they're in the right GMU, we'll work with them over, you know, one season versus the other. It's, it's really super flexible and our goal is to try to make it where it benefits the hunters that are paying for it, but also is a true benefit to that landowner.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And, and you had mentioned that camping's not allowed. Are there other, I guess, blanket restrictions like, like, uh, vehicles, off-road travel, that kind of stuff?
1: Um, Really, the big ones that are kind of blanket are is camping, and that is because of the liability that could potentially go with that for both the department and the landowner. Um, A lot of them will say that they don't mind if vehicles pull off the road a little ways and just follow the state vehicle rules. Some of them say they want vehicles only on roads, um, and we'll post them. Or if they don't want a vehicle down certain roads, we post those as closed uh and so as far as any other big blanket restrictions no um it it really comes down to to uh you know hey let's talk about this and see make sure it fits your property your personality uh what you want out there and then make sure it fits you know just kind of where it does benefit hunters that are going out there and we're not so restrictive that they can't go out there and have the opportunity to hunt and have a
0: good time so, if there's if there's any landowners that are listening in and and thinking about you know this program, um, what are what are some common, I guess, questions or concerns that that landowners typically have when they're first meeting with you and talking about the possibility of of enrolling in the Open Gate program?
1: the The two big ones, the the two big concerns I hear every time. Are you know, am I going to get overrun by hunters? Um, you know, am I just going to get totally overwhelmed? And the answer to that is typically no, uh, because we can frame that open gate opportunity to the GMU regulations, and so we can kind of control numbers. A- and so that one is usually not a concern. The other one is they're going to come out here and just throw trash everywhere and interestingly with the landowners that have enrolled for a few years and you go back and ask them, what do you think of this? On the open gate properties, the hunters seem to take better care of them than they do just general open property because they they do understand that they're getting a privilege. So those are the two. Am I going to get overwhelmed and am I going to have trash everywhere? And generally we can address both of those.
0: Okay. Okay and you had mentioned landowners that have participated and going back with it back to them follow, kind of following up and uh and they were surprised to see you know how how clean the the hunters kept the property what about other things that participating landowners have said I guess as far as about the experience of being in the program
1: Mostly, I get really positive comments. Um, They're excited to mainly get to see kids out there. A lot of these properties kind of lend themselves to taking kids and going hunting and kind of first-time experience. A lot of the landowners are really excited to see that. Um, I've got one landowner I work with that has watched. um, He's in his third generation of people coming on his property and hunting. And so he's got to watch grandpa kind of grow up. He's got to watch the dad grow up and now he's getting to watch the grandkids. So they, it, it, I think it gives them kind of a sense of fulfillment. A lot of them, when you talk to them about just being able to provide an opportunity out there that might not otherwise be available.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and so it sounds like from a, from a landowner perspective, it's a positive thing. From a hunter perspective, obviously, it's a positive thing to to have more access to to these properties. So, where how does this program work? Where do, where do the funds come for this program?
1: Um, every year, when you buy your hunting license and you pay for that HMAV, the Habitat Management Access Validation, a portion of that comes in, and that is the money that funds these. And so. There's no additional cost for a hunter to get to use them. You've already paid for that opportunity, um, and and then it is also matched by federal aid. Um, and so, you, you just, I mean, there's a lot of monetary opportunity for these leases. It, it's it's pretty cool because it's all self-funded by the hunters right up front.
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome that it is. It is hunters paying for this program. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit and move into talking about the program from the hunter's perspective. So you said that um, when you buy that habitat management and access validation, that that is your uh, sort of your permit to go out there. So are are there any other um, special requirements? Are there access restrictions as far as like, I assume it's open for both residents and non-residents?
1: it's open for resident and non-resident um, if there are times that it's that the property may be closed for example there's a property down at uh uh down by Roswell that allows access only during a portion of the year and if you look it up on the website or or you know through that QR code on the sign it gives you those dates um, but the minute you buy that hunting license you paid for that HMAV um, all you have to do is follow the posted rules on there and then the season dates for whatever hunting or fishing you want to do. And and those are really the only restrictions as far as access. Um, there are a couple of landowners that request that you give them a call if you're going to go out there. Um, uh, some of them are farming operations. they're They're still farming that land. Uh, they would just like you to call and say, Hey, I'm going to be out there. And they may say, Well, please don't go to the North field. The day I'm going to be working out there. But, and, and so you kind of work with that landowner, but those are, are really the only, I would say restrictions that are, are there as far as access once you pay that HMAV.
0: Okay. Well, so let's say that, that I'm a, I'm a hunter and I, uh, found a, an open gate property that, that I want to go hunt on. Can I scout on that property prior to the season opening or is it open usually when that season is open? Are there other, you know, can you go hiking, shooting, or is it strictly for hunting purposes only?
1: It is for hunting only. Uh, there's no hiking, shooting, just recreating because they are private lands. Um, and, but most of them, through the agreement that we signed with them, allow scouting a couple of days before season opens. Uh, and, and so you can get out there for a couple of days and scout. Um, on a couple of them that I have, if you call the landowner and visit with him, if they give you their their contact information, they'll work with you for additional scouting. But you have to, most of them are two days only, and then most of them don't want their contact information out. There's just a, a couple that are, are willing to do that.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds like it's it's a great opportunity to work. You know, have some new access, but then work with that landowner to make sure um, that they're obviously happy and want to continue to sign up. So, so speaking of that, um, and you talked about how hunters do recognize that they you know need to take care of these lands. They are private lands. Um, but what are some ways that hunters can be respectful of this privilege uh, to ensure that those landowners also have a good experience and continue to want to to sign up their property?
1: The, the biggest thing is open and close gates, leave gates like you find them. Um, don't throw trash, You know, pick just pick up behind yourself and follow those posted rules. Um, And then, you know, if you do happen to run into the landowner, uh, you know, a a thank you goes a million miles with these landowners to know that they've done something that's appreciated. But the biggest thing is just show respect to their land and, and respect to them for the opportunity that they're, that they're giving you because they're not required to open their lands. They're, they're really, you know, going above and beyond as a private landowner. Uh, yeah, they're getting paid for it, but still they're they're allowing access onto something that they don't necessarily have to and so you know that respect and and cleanliness and and that kind of thing goes just a long way with them
0: for sure for sure and so if if um well for both hunters listening in and landowners listening in that would be interested in this program um I guess how let's start with landowners first. How would they find more information on the program about you know how to sign up or how to schedule that initial meeting with you to to talk about, you know, a potential interest in, in signing up a property?
1: Um, all they gotta do, uh the, the simple way is just give me a call. Um, if they wanna read on it before they get clear into that stage, if they will uh just do an internet search or open gate New Mexico. Um, it will bring up the uh, page that's on our on the game and fish website um, and there are tabs on there that explain what the landowner gets out of it what the hunter gets out of it um, and different information on the landowner tab there is the rate sheet that shows what our payments are there's an application Um and then, if they want more information, uh, a phone call to me and and I'll visit with them and explain everything the absolute best I can. Um, I'm excited about the program. I think it's a neat opportunity, and so I, I really enjoy visiting with landowners about it.
0: So I'll, I'll put your contact information and the links uh, in the in the show notes for this for this episode. So you're talking about the online resources for the landowner and i took a a quick glance at the online resources for hunters Uh, and so you have both your your property locator page um, and then also a rate of property section Um, so obviously the property locator would would be if i'm a hunter trying to find a, a new spot to go i can go and use that to to see who signed up and and what species are are available i assume um, what about the rate of property? Why why is that important?
1: For me, that's that is a huge thing. It gives me several different pieces of information. Um, I can tell if a property is not being used. Are we not advertising it right? Is it not offering the species we want? Is it not in a good area of the state? And so, if I don't see any utilization on it, it makes me really look at it. Are we Responsibly spending that HMAV money on a property that's not good, uh, or, or, you know, it's in a, in an area that's just not being utilized. Um, or if, uh, uh, to me, it's also an opportunity to find out, are they going out there and hunting, uh, quail on a property? And there's lots of people that go and hunt and they're not finding quail. Um, then we really don't want to lease it for quail. It, it just gives me feedback. On are we providing a quality opportunity, uh, for that hunter? Um, and then it also gives me an idea of if I'm going to lease other properties in that general area, um, how do we negotiate those leases? If it's a, you know, just a, uh, bang up area to hunt turkeys, then I really want to negotiate those leases more because I know I'm getting positive feedback from that area. So it's, it's a huge tool for me to hear back from the hunters. And, and know that we're providing something that they're, that's worth it for their HMAD monies.
0: But, but it's strictly on a, on a voluntary basis?
1: Yep, it is. There's no requirement if you've hunted and you don't want to tell me anything, no big deal. Um, but it, it's such a huge help that I, I, I really want people to give me that feedback. And, and if you're uncomfortable with, with the web application, give me a call and tell me, you know, what kind of an experience you had. Um, that's, that is every bit as valuable to me as well.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Sounds like it's a, it's a benefit to those hunters to actually do that to ensure that, that the properties that are, that are signed up are, are the best properties available.
1: Well, I, it is because ultimately it's those hunters dollars that are paying for these leases. And so. The hunter should have an opportunity to help guide the program. Tell me your experiences. Tell me good, bad. Even even if you want to, uh, uh, you know, call me and tell me, hey, there's a, a piece of property that I drive by all the time that I see quail alongside the highway. To be really cool to get the hunt there, give me that kind of information because I can reach out to landowners and see if we can't start a conversation. So, you know, the the hunter is the one paying for this. I feel like the hunter is the one that should, you know, help kind of drive the program and then, and then we got to make sure that that landowner is, is benefiting on the, on the other side of the coin.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, just to kind of take a step back a minute, cause we've talked specifically about, about hunting a lot. Are there, are there fishing properties included in this as well? Yeah,
1: we have, uh, several scattered from all, all across the state. Um, and everything from pond fishing to some uh, fly fishing opportunities, a couple of really neat uh, uh, stream fishing opportunities. And those to me are really important because those are kind of a gateway opportunity, especially a cool place to you know take a kid and get them outdoors. Um, you know when when everything is is good out there, it's it's a fun place to go with your kids. So uh, there's a lot of fishing opportunities and those are important to me.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, it sounds all around like just a, a really great program for both the landowners and hunters and anglers and sounds, sounds like a really cool job.
1: I enjoy it. I, to me, um, and I come from kind of a different background from Texas Parks and Wildlife because it's more, you know, predominantly private landowners over there, but I enjoy working with private landowners. Um, they have, a lot to offer to hunters and anglers, uh, because they own some really cool pieces of the world. And so I get to, to visit with them. I get to see their properties. And then the other side of it, I, you know, I'm offering a service to hunters that I think is, is really valuable just with some added opportunity.
0: Okay. But since you've done both now, which, which is, which is more exciting, the open gate program or alligators in East Texas? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, man, that's a hard one to answer. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not sure that there's a best or or anything. You, you, there's there's a little more excitement to handle in an alligator, but uh, long-term enjoyment probably comes with working with landowners.
0: All right, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears here a little bit and um, talk about one of your hobbies. So from the sounds of it, you've done quite a few... European skull mounts through the years.
1: Yeah, that's, I, uh, that's one of the things I enjoy doing. Um, is just, and it's not even, uh, what you would typically say is a European skull mount. I've done everything from, uh, white footed deer mice up to bison. Um, I'm just fascinated with, with, uh, cleaning skulls and, uh, you know, what you can learn and, and get to mess with them. It's just a lot of fun.
0: Well, that's awesome. So let, let's talk a little bit about that and kind of have you walk us through the steps and the different techniques used um, in that process. So let's say that, that I just harvested a deer and I've packed out the quarters and the head. So what should I do? Should I, should I freeze it? Until I have time to mess with it, should I hang it somewhere, or do I really need to just take the time to work on that skull immediately?
1: The nice thing about doing the European
0: mount is, is you can do
1: almost any of the above. Um, if you don't have time to mess with it, you can, the best is to freeze it. If you're, if you're not worried about the real wh- bright white color, you can just let it dry. Uh, but you've got to make sure it really dries and doesn't just start rotting, or you can dive right off into it. Uh, that that's the cool part of doing the European mount is is you're not pressed to try to save the hide and and everything else. It gives you a little bit of latitude.
0: Okay, okay. So let's say that that I'm ready to to work on work on my skull. What's what's the very first step?
1: There's the first thing you want to do. You got to skin the thing, um, and then uh, this this sounds maybe a little gory, but it really helps. You got to remove the eyeballs, and then as much flesh as you can just trim off. Um, and then there's really three ways to go about uh, finishing or starting to work on the skull. One of them is, of course, the dermestid beetle, uh, but you have to have the colony and and be willing to mess with a, a colony. Um, the second way is to boil the skull, uh, which is just nothing but, you know, a big pot and, uh, uh, some hot water. And then you can also just, uh, uh, soak it, uh, and let it soak in water. And this sounds a little bit bizarre, but if you have, uh, a pot of water and you're putting your skull in it, you add, um, some horse manure to it and it will help the process. So you got kind of three different avenues you can go, and each one of them has benefits and
0: pitfalls. Uh, Back up a little bit there. So what does the manure do in the water? Um, There are are enzymes in that manure
1: that will break down the flesh a lot faster. Um, If you just soak the skull, you can soak it for a week before the flesh will start falling off. With the manure, you're looking at maybe a day and a half, and that flesh will come off. Um, it also changes the color of the skull a little bit to a kind of a, almost a roan color and, and so it's a pretty finish. It's just different than the real shiny white skull.
0: I, I'm not sure I even want to ask how you figured that out.
1: Um on pure accident when my horse backed up and, and, uh, did his business in a pot that I had sitting outside. <laughs> <laughs> So my, my horse helped the process along and I didn't even know what was going on until I went back to the, the pod a
0: couple of days later. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever works. You bet, you bet. So knowing that there's these three different options, are there different techniques that are better for, I mean you say say you've done everything from bison to mice skulls, so are there be- things that are better for small skulls versus you know, larger skulls? The,
1: uh, easiest and the cleanest and the one that causes the, or the, you have to take less precautions with the skull is going to be the beetles. But that one is, you know, you have to have the right setup to do the beetles and, and, you, and it's kind of a, uh, a challenge to manage a beetle colony. Um, but the boiling gives you a real brilliant white skull, um, versus either the beetles or the just soaking um and so each one of them you, you almost have to figure out how delicate is your skull because with a really delicate type skull uh a lot of times the boiling will will make the sutures come apart uh with stuff like coyotes or, or mountain lions or bears it will make the teeth fall out so you have to be prepared for that um, and the soaking will do kind of the same thing if you soak it too long you'll start you know the soul, skull softens and so you really have to kind of just set back and look how big and robust is this animal um is it a uh you know something with canine teeth versus something like a a deer um and you just kind of have to fit your technique to the to the head that you have
0: and the results you want you had me intrigued there with the Horse manure in a bucket, so I didn't really hit on the beetles. But let's talk. Let's talk about that a minute. So, you you say it's hard to to keep a colony of beetles. So, what if somebody really wanted to get into this and and wanted to have the beetles? I assume you would order those, and then there's some kind of maintenance where you have to feed them ever so often or something like that.
1: Yeah, you can order the beetles. um, You you have to have uh, some sort of a container that they can't escape from because they are absolute escape artists. Um, and then you have to supply a constant flow of of fresh meat um, or the colony will die out or they'll leave or or they'll dwindle down to such a point that if you put a skull in there, it'll take several weeks to clean it instead of a day or a day and a half. And so... There's a lot of maintenance. You have to feed them. You have to keep them contained. Um, you do have to clean the, the container periodically. Um, and, and basically what it is, it's the juvenile stage that's cleaning your skull and the adults are just in there laying eggs. And so you have to keep the, the whole generational cycle going. Um, but it, it can be a lot of fun because with, uh, something, for example, a white-tailed deer skull, um, if you have a really active colony, um, in a day and a half, you have a clean skull with, you know, that's that's basically ready to finish. Um, and so it, it, it goes really fast. It's a lot of fun, but it, it does take a little more work just because of the maintenance that goes into them.
0: I assume you're not keeping these in your house, though, right? No, they, um, well, Number 1 the chance of
1: escape is pretty bad and then the chance of my wife beating me over the head if they escape is even bigger <laughs> so they stay a- quite away from the house
0: <laughs> Oh man <laughs> So knowing that that the beetles process is is basically eating all of the flesh off of off of the bone if let's say you have a a skull from a from an animal that's in velvet how would you go about processing that skull? I assume you wouldn't use the beetles. You can.
1: Um, it is a challenge, but you can use the beetles. Uh, basically, what you're going to do is, if you have a buck in velvet, uh, you're going to wrap that uh, those antlers in multiple layers of aluminum foil um, and and seal those antlers off. Um, extremely well, uh, and then down at the base, you're going to end up having to scrape some flesh to where you have clean bone and tape the the uh, aluminum foil at the base of the antler, and then you you have to basically monitor that till to the point at the minute that all the flesh has gone off of the skull, you pull it out and clean it so that they don't get to that to that velvet. You can do it, but it's it's almost one of those where you have to sit and babysit it. Uh, very closely to make sure they're not getting in there um, it's better with with velvet uh, you're better off to do the boiling uh, because you can control the timing and uh, you know the how how much of that skulls in that boiling water and so you, you have more control that way
0: so how would you what, what would you do with the velvet though as far as you know, keeping that on the mountain, is there a way to preserve it or or not really? Uh,
1: Yeah, there's a couple of different ways. Um, One of the ones that I've had good luck with is to uh, immediately uh, flesh the the skull as much as possible, Um, boil it immediately, uh, get rid of, you know, more flesh that way, and then stick the entire head in a container of... uh, uh that twenty mule team borax uh borax will completely desiccate uh pull all of that moisture out of those out of that velvet and uh it it'll it'll make it to where that doesn't start any kind of decomposition process but you gotta kind of get after it pretty quick but you can you can definitely save the velvet and that's one way there are several different techniques, but that's one that i've used I've had good luck with
0: okay. Okay, so so we've talked a little bit about antlers. So let's talk about horns. So in species where they have a horn sheath, when you're boiling out that skull, what do you need to do with the with the sheath? Do so you leave them on? Take them off? What do you do there?
1: Um, if you're going to boil it, you have to make sure that you don't get the sheath down in boiling water. Uh, and again with soaking, you can't, you gotta make sure that that sheath stays out of that water because it'll damage the bottom of the, the horn sheath. Um, horned antlers is where you're way better off with the beetles. Uh, you just get a, you don't damage that horn sheath in any way and the beetle will go up inside, uh, and clean out the flesh that's between the, the horn core and the sheath and within, uh, usually 12 hours or so you can actually pull the sheath out clean the beetles off and set the sheath aside and let them finish the skull uh and so that's one if you're boiling or soaking you just have to be very very careful that that's that sheath doesn't get in the water uh but i like the beetles for for horned animals
0: that makes sense makes sense so you you mentioned using these different techniques you kind of have to be um Mindful of of what the skull is, what the species is. Um, you mentioned teeth falling out of some some skulls and that kind of thing that you got to be mindful of. Are there different skulls that are harder to do or have other considerations? Like maybe they're do they need to be degreased or anything like that?
1: Bear uh, are terrible about having a lot of oil in the flesh, and so you have to degrease those. Um, the the best thing to do with those is, um, hydrogen peroxide. Uh, you just kind of, again, got to be careful if you soak it too long, especially with bears, the soles will, will split lengthwise. Um, but if you'll get the, uh, the hydrogen peroxide, like the, like at the beauty salons, uh, dilute it a little bit because it's, it's way stronger than the stuff that you get at the store to treat your cut. Um, It'll take that grease off, and it'll pull the, the antler into a or the horn, uh, the skull. Pardon me, I, I'm bumbling on that one. But it'll turn it very white, and it'll degrease it. If you leave like bears that are really greasy, if you don't do that step, um, before long you're going to be able to smell it. <laughs> number one, and then number two, it will start discoloring the skull, and then it will kind of start breaking the skull down a little bit.
0: Okay, so do you do that with with just the bear skulls or would you do that with a a deer skull or anything just to try to help get rid of that odor and and whiten that skull a little?
1: Um, I I would do it with almost anything. It's just you're going to soak it a little bit longer. You're going to use a little bit different strength of a solution if you have a lot of grease. Okay. Um, And then if you want the skull to be very white. Now, I, I think that having kind of that uh, amber or roan color in the skulls is kind of pretty. So a lot of them, I will barely put them in peroxide just to get rid of the grease and then take them out where it doesn't actually turn the skull white. And I finish them with kind of that, uh, amber sheen on them.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so that's pretty much your step process then. You, you use one of your three methods to clean the skull. Um, hydrogen peroxide to, to degrease. And then to whiten, and then you just leave it in the hydrogen peroxide, different lengths depending on how white you want that skull to be.
1: Yes, and then get it out, let it air dry, uh, let it get super dry, and then um, I depending again depending upon the finish that I want, I'll either use uh, like uh, airplane shellac or uh just a clear polyurethane spray on coat and I'll spray the skull several times uh to seal it uh keep moisture out of it and and kind of preserve whatever finish I've accomplished with with the uh, peroxide and everything.
0: Okay, so that final step ha- helps really preserve it. So if you boil a skull, peroxide it, looks nice for a few years and then it starts to kind of yellow back it's because you didn't take that final step and and preserve the process
1: yeah it'll either start yellowing or it'll actually start kind of getting a chalky feel to it and then if it's sitting on a table you'll actually start finding a little layer of like almost chalky dust under it but if you use that final process and seal it um it it just preserves it preserves it better um, I have some deer that I've done 25 years ago, and they're still, they they pretty well look like the day I, I finished them.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So we went through the whole process. We've got our skull all nice and shiny. How do you like to to mount them? I know that you're using different mounts for different things, some just to, you know, have a collection of maybe... Mouse skulls. I mean, I'm, maybe you're hanging those on your wall. I don't know.
1: <laughs> you know, with, with the deer, um, one of the things that I enjoy doing with the deer is I'll, I'll actually keep the lower jaw because of being able to age the animal. Um, and I'll mount the skull with either one side of the lower jaw or the entire thing, uh, on a plaque. And then, um, I just kind of one of my, deals that I enjoy I'll also take the uh rifle casing you know whatever 30-06 or 270 or whatever and I'll I'll mount that on the mount with the with the animal okay um and I I've done everything from pedestal mounts um to wall plaques uh just I kind of let the character of the animal itself dictate what kind of amount I'm going to do but I I Enjoy putting the, the cartridge on it that, that killed the animal just as a kind of a, uh, you know, glorify the animal in a way that, that, that I took.
0: For sure. For sure. And then as far as, um, skulls that are not related to a harvest, those are just for a, um, collection type purposes.
1: Um, especially in Texas, I haven't done it since I've been in New Mexico, but in Texas, we did uh, a lot of, um, like the different, uh, uh, mice and, and rats that were on our WMAs the the different rodents. And we just put them in a little glass box with a uh, little pins with the names in front of them. Um, and just made display boxes or like shadow boxes with them.
0: So, so for um, education purposes then.
1: Yeah, I did, and that's almost all of the, the, the skull collection that I kept in Texas was I used with kid programs, uh, to, to talk about the different animals and food chains and, and that kind of thing. And so I built them more as an educational display type of a thing.
0: Okay. Okay. So now that we've got our skull finished and in our shadow box or hanging on the wall, is there any maintenance that's needed? Um, are, are bugs a concern later on? Any other I guess final considerations on maintenance or mounting skulls?
1: Um, through time, you, you, um, you might get a little insect activity, especially in the you know in, inside the skull, in the brain cavity, up in the nasal cavity if you didn't get it real clean. Um, you gotta just kinda watch the skull and if you start seeing any uh like I said, that chalky residue, then you then you wanna take it off of the mount and just clean it up, um, and then respray it with the with the sealant. Um, otherwise, like I said, I've got a couple hanging on the wall right outside the room where I'm talking to you that are twenty five years old and have been on the wall the whole time and uh other than going through periodically with a little duster so that they don't Look cruddy and I get the spider webs off of them. That's about it.
0: Man, that's pretty cool. So, I guess what, just to kind of close this out here, what's the, what are the coolest skulls that you've, that you've done this with? Um, I
1: love working with alligator skulls. Uh, they are, they are really cool looking. Um, I enjoy, uh, bison. Um, you get a really cool looking, Project with that. And then I like bears. Uh, just, I, I just, to me, when you get done with a bear mount, if you do it right, it's just a really cool looking thing. So I'd say those are kind of my three favorites.
0: I take it you probably haven't done very many alligators since you moved to New Mexico.
1: Uh, they've been pretty scarce to do in New Mexico before <laughs> I lived in uh, East Texas. Um, I, uh, I, I probably through time have done 30 or 40 alligators
0: wow wow that's really cool
1: so they're fun they're a lot of fun uh they fall apart so you got to put them back like a jigsaw puzzle um but they you, you turn out with a really neat project when you're done
0: well i guess that's something we didn't really hit on so what are you when you're when things fall apart what are you putting them back together with
1: Uh, you've got to experiment with different, uh, types of glue. Um, I've had really good luck with a couple of, uh, uh, brands and I don't, one of them that I've had good luck and I don't know if I should promote a brand, but Loctite super glue. Okay. Um, it feels completely clear, um, and it doesn't break down through time. And so when you glue something together, it's kind of a, a permanent clear, you don't even see it on the skull. And so I've just had good luck with that product.
0: Okay. Very cool. Well, you've sure given us a lot of, a lot of good information on the, on the process and some tips and tricks and, uh, sure appreciate that. And also for filling us in on the open gate program and, and talking about it from both a, a landowner perspective and a hunter perspective and, and how that program benefits both. I think that's about all that we have time for today, but sure appreciate you chatting with us and giving us a bunch of good information. Absolutely. Enjoyed the opportunity. Well, thanks again, Gary. And thank you all for tuning in today. Be sure and check out our other shows and also the New Mexico Wildlife Digital Magazine and the monthly newsletters. And get outside and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities that this state has to offer. See you next time.